Special thanks to CHR Hansen, a leader in fermentation and innovative brewing solutions. CHR Hansen's range of high-quality yeasts includes Smart Bev Near, which crafts flavorful beer entirely without the alcohol. These yeasts even enable fast, climate-friendly, and cost-efficient production. We thank CHR Hansen for their support and commitment to excellence in brewing. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Berkeley Yeast, creators of diacetyl-free yeast strains. Diacetyl-free strains are bioengineered to produce the ALDC enzyme inside the yeast cell to keep diacetyl low during fermentation and after packaging. Diacetyl-free strains create the cleanest flavor profile possible, which makes them the yeast of choice for the most exacting brewer. Go to berkeleyyeast.com to read about how brewers are using diacetyl-free strains to propel their beers to the top of the podium. Grist Analytics captures and trends data across the brewery so you can see issues as they are happening, not several batches later. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and see scheduling predictions from anywhere. Connect Grist with your ERP platform to cover your brewery from production to finance. What you're about to hear originally aired in April of 2020. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. I used to think, oh, just brew the beer that you want and go into the barrel. Just do it right the first time. But I was really kind of, I was completely missing the uh, advantage of being able to fine-tune flavors with different beers. This week on the show, we take a look at spirit barrel aging processes, procedures, and techniques for small-scale programs. Hi, my name is Julian Schrego, and I am the brewmaster and co-owner of Beechwood Brewing in California. You wrote that the barrel is an ingredient and not an additive. What exactly do you mean by that? So I, I think that people should think of the totality of everything that they're using. Uh, and you should ideally design the beer recipe specifically to work with a barrel. Uh, some people may have an amazing imperial stout that stands on its own. And they think that amazing imperial stout plus barrel equals uh, yet another level of awesome. And that that may not work out. The flavors may not be compatible. So um, if there are flavors that you are going to be that, you know, you're going to be getting from the barrel or any other ingredient, you might need to add or subtract those components from the base beer. So uh, I'm sure some people out there have tasted barrel aged beers, uh, especially stouts uh, that 
may have a little bit of a coconut character to them. And sometimes so, so much so that you might think coconut was actually added to the beer when in fact, that's most likely a compound called whiskey lactone that naturally exists in the barrel. So, you know, that it, you don't always get that from a barrel, but it's not, it's not uncommon. Um, and sometimes we get that from specific, uh, Spirit uh, distillers, I would say, that, that work with certain, certain coopers uh, where the barrels, you know, regularly have that flavor. And sometimes we will, we might even blend in uh, a coconut stout to the finished barrel-aged beer to emphasize that particular characteristic. Okay. Vanilla is uh, a compound that you get from barrels as well that I think complements uh, caramel undertones in a base beer. So that uh, that vanilla flavor and aroma that you naturally get from the wood might complement some type of uh, medium caramel malt additions in a beer. Uh, Char and ash, I think, is one that brewers should be fairly uh, aware of and that uh, if they like to brew fairly roasty stouts or fairly roasty beers, they can probably back off on that, uh, those roasted malts anywhere from two to 4% because they're going to be getting roast and char contributions from the oak itself, especially if it's a heavy toasted spirit barrel, like an American bourbon barrel, um, kind of on that same token, uh, American oak does have some tannic qualities. They tend to be fairly minimal compared to something like uh, French oak wine barrel, but tannins in a finished beer can present as kind of a bitter surge in the finish. So I often encourage brewers to reduce bitterness in a base beer uh, to kind of counteract that, that tannic bitterness that you might get from a barrel. And regarding smoke, um, that is something that, um, sometimes comes from barrels in varying degrees. It can present simply as like a, like a neutral kind of, uh, fruit wood barbecue, kind of generic barbecue smoke characteristic, which I think is really pleasant in barrel aged beers, especially dark ones. Uh, if you want to emphasize that you can use a small percentage of smoked malt in the base beer. We've done that before at Beechwood, where we have uh, brewed a base beer, a big imperial stout for barrels, and we've used uh, 5% oak smoked wheat. So it's, it's the same kind of phenolic uh, smoke profile that would also be coming from the barrel. Your article explained why bourbon barrels are so easy to come by. Tell us why that is. Bourbon barrels are probably the most abundant spirit barrel, certainly in the United States. And uh, federal law dictates that um, that if you're going to call a spirit bourbon, uh, there's a certain grist it needs to have, which is, you know, the majority needs to be corn. But uh, new uh, heavy toast American oak barrels need to be used every time. So bourbon distillers are not allowed to reuse their barrels for anything that they want to call bourbon. And, uh, it sometimes, I mean, most bourbons in the United States are aged for a minimum of four years. Um, if they're aged for less than that, it's often stated on the bottle aged for two years, aged for three years. But if there's no statement of age, um, on the bourbon, uh, bottle, it's probably been aged for four years plus, but 
that means that for most distillers, bourbon barrels are single use, one and done. And so they are abundant and they're relatively inexpensive. You also wrote that the base beer to be aged in barrels must have room for and accommodate the barrel character. That makes sense, but give us some practical specifics there. Okay, so um, a, a beer that would, uh, for example, you I like barrel-aged beers that, that have perceptible alcohol to them. I like big barrel-aged beers. I want to know that there's kind of a substantial spirit character to them, but I don't want to go overboard. So, uh, for example, I wouldn't probably want to go into a bourbon barrel with a base beer that was, you know, like thir- above 13% alcohol. In my opinion, it would not have room for the alcoholic contribution that's going to come from the barrel. It would be too hot. It might actually end up thinning out the body, but it would be kind of going overboard. So I would, I would, um, kind of, uh, in in kind of a counteractive measure make sure that my base beer wasn't too alcoholic so that it had room for the uh the kind of spirit contribution that's coming from the barrel getting back to sort of the concept of how you're modifying base beers to work in a given barrel aging process the example you used before was decreasing bitterness um, in the event that you predict you're going to pick up a lot of tannins. Talk about some other ways that you might modify those base beers. Well, one of the biggest, uh, for me, flaws that I I find uh, generally in um, spirit barrel-aged beers is the body is too thin. Uh, And so I think a lot of that results from uh, some tannin pickup, but a lot of you know, spirit contribution to the base spirit can kind of tend to chip away at body. And so I think you need to counteract that by brewing a base beer that maybe has more body than you would want if you're drinking it on its own. So um, higher finishing gravities or additional use of what I call bodybuilding malts, uh, things like flaked oats, perhaps rye, um, considering the use of uh, things like maybe maltodextrin or lactose and higher mash temperatures. So increasing uh, the final things that you can do to increase final gravity and increase mouthfeel beyond what you would normally want in a base beer. You also mentioned that there aren't very many beer styles that will result in a balanced beer after barrel aging, but which styles would you put on that list? So. What I would say is there are, to kind of clarify, there are, in my opinion, uh, a handful of traditional styles that without modification or without much modification lend themselves to barrel aging. Those tend to be very malt-driven, not hop-driven styles with big residual body. So probably the best example of a traditional style that can go into a barrel unmodified or slightly modified is a uh a scottish uh wee heavy scotch strong ale uh another example would be something like uh, a belgian quad it probably I, we've done those in barrels before i think those age uh really well i think uh english barley wines do well um kind of to contrast that as a general rule I don't think something like, uh, let's just say, a traditional robust porter 
people people have certainly do good robust porters that are barrel aged but if you take a straight up robust porter that's maybe six to seven percent alcohol it might just get thinned out to something that's not quite what you want that's not substantial enough you suggest ensuring barrels don't get rinsed or steamed after emptying but there's definitely a lot of folks out there who do rinse and or steam barrels what's the problem with that approach um i wouldn't recommend doing that um and i think what that does is uh, like it it rinsing barrels and steaming barrels uh it can open up the wood uh but it also rinses out and diminishes that amazing spirit character that's locked up in a fresh barrel and this is why i emphasize um you know to people work with a barrel broker that can get you freshly emptied unrinsed barrels it's really not tough to do anymore uh maybe 10 15 years ago there were one or two people in the united states who brokered barrels and you kind of got what you got but nowadays there are so many barrel brokers that work very closely with distilleries and coopers um and we're often able to get barrels within a week of them being emptied so it's I, I wouldn't recommend steaming or rinsing. I think you diminish the barrel character, and I think you you invite a chance potentially for infection. And what about refilling immediately afterwards to get a second use out of the barrel? I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, and wood is in general, it's not it's not a sanitary surface. But there is uh, there is a really good way to sanitize it once. And that is you char the inside of the barrel and then you fill it with uh, distilled spirit that's 60 to 70% alcohol. That will sanitize it once. Uh, and so that's another reason why going into a freshly emptied spirit barrel is so important is it functionally ensures sanitation. But beer coming out, it can really quickly start to pick up stuff. And uh, I personally don't think it's worth the risk there are people out there who certainly uh do multiple turns on spirit barrels but i think after the first aging period you've really gotten the most out of it talk about barrel storage prior to use and how long can they be stored uh barrel storage i recommend a cool uh dry and and dark place uh some people might have a storage room or, you know, you can store them outside if they're, if they're in a covered area like a garage, I would say. Um, but cool, dark, and dry place is the best place to store. Barrels, um, I would say keep them away from grain or any, any kind of dust source, especially any kind of dust source that can, uh, you know, carry bacteria and mold and stuff like grain dust can. Uh, and if you get freshly emptied barrels, uh, I would recommend filling them within a month of arrival. Some people can get away with up to two months if it's if the relative humidity is is high enough and the barrels stay damp. But that's kind of pushing it, I think. You also talked about how um, empty barrels need to you need to make sure they get plugged before they they ship. Um, and you also, I think, you have some some opinions on the the types of bungs that are used there too. My preference is uh, what's called a dead soft wooden bung. Uh, so uh, that's how most spirit barrels are shipped in the United States. Occasionally, um, I'll get uh, plastic bungs, which are adequate. 
you know, if, if the barrels are, are fairly freshly emptied. Uh, one time I had a shipment of barrels show up and there were uh, those little paper disposable cups like what you get at the dentist office that were in the bungholes. Wow. And I, I refused the order. I sent it back. And the barrel broker was <laughs> uh, was kind of embarrassed. They said, oh, we're so sorry that happened. That, that, was, that should not have happened. Yeah. So no paper cups. Um, I've also had barrels show up that were simply, you know, and this is, this doesn't happen anymore. This is kind of when some of the newer barrel brokers were, were getting their feet wet in the business, but I had barrels show up once that were simply wrapped. Uh, the center section was wrapped in saran wrap and the bungs weren't plugged and those I was not comfortable using either. Coming up. There's no excuse not to plate beer before going into a barrel. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Looking for a sustainable way to increase fermenter capacity? Try FirmCap Eco from Cary. Developed as a part of Cary's Eco Brewing range, FirmCap Eco is a plant-based alternative to traditional silicon-based products. FirmCap Eco increases fermenter capacity by reducing foam height to improve beer foam stability and enhance hop utilization. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact your BSG sales rep to get started. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. 
the Lupion Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The 2024 Ontario Technical Conference is January 31st to the 2nd at the Pillar and Post. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly February 15th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins February 22nd. District Great Plains has their annual meeting February 23rd and 24th at Mark One Electric Company in Kansas City. District Northern Cal meets February 25th at Moonlight Brewing in Santa Rosa. District St. Louis meets at Top Golf in Chesterfield February 26th. District St. Louis's March Shop Talk will be at Blue Jay Brewing March 21st. The District St. Louis Spring Quarterly Meeting is April 8th. District St. Louis teams up with the Pink Boots Chapter of St. Louis May 9th at Nine Mile Garden. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 6th. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. How do you inspect a barrel prior to filling it? What are you looking for there? Uh, prior to filling it, uh, as far as the exterior of the barrel goes, I am looking ideally for thick, wide staves. And uh, thick, wide staves are typically the sign of a good cooper and a high quality barrel if you get a barrel that's got a lot of tiny staves that are maybe an inch wide or an inch and a half wide as opposed to let's just say three inches wide that's uh probably more or less a scrap wood barrel and and typically not good wood good substantial oak they will uh you know the the staves will be pretty uniform in width and fairly substantial. So on the outside of the barrel, I, I look for thick, wide, uniform staves. Um, I look to make sure that uh, there's no mold growing on the outside of the barrel. Um, I, I try not to get barrels that uh, where the original bung has been uh, pried out haphazardly with a, a pry bar, and there are huge chunks of wood missing from around the bung hole that might prevent a good seal when I put in a hard bung. Um, and then the interior of the barrel, um, inspecting that just prior to filling, uh, we will remove the, uh, the bung. Uh, we'll get the barrel on, on a barrel rack on its side with the bung facing up um, and we'll remove the bung and uh, kind of inspect it with a, a very bright, narrow beam flashlight. And I'm ideally looking for some spirit moisture, if not a little bit of spirit in the bilge, the belly of the barrel. Um, I don't mind a little pile of char flakes at the bottom of the barrel. I'm looking for uniform char. I'm looking to make sure that I can't see any gaps in the staves, any conspicuous gaps. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for I'm looking for uniformity. 
and then I carefully smell uh, the vapor coming out of each barrel. And it's going to be intense. It's pure spirit vapor that's coming out. Uh, but it, and it should smell intense. It should smell alcoholic, but it shouldn't smell like solvent. It shouldn't smell like acetone or vinegar. Do you ever use one of those little like mechanic mirrors to, to look at the top of it too? Ooh, that's a good idea. No, okay. no, I haven't. Just curious. I should, I should talk to my dentist about getting one of those or Harbor Freight. I'm there sure you go. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you don't recommend filling barrels directly off a of fermenter. Why is that? Uh, I think most, unless you're, uh, you know, a brewery that has the ability to do very reliable cell counts throughout the entire transfer process, I think there's too much risk in carrying over yeast into a barrel, and it doesn't take much yeast uh, to contribute autolytic flavors to a finished beer, and that's probably uh, one of the more common flaws that I taste, especially in barrel-aged stouts, is that kind of umami soy sauce character. And personally, I really don't like it. It, it, I think it, I think it takes away from the character of the beer, and that often happens when brewers fill directly off a of fermenter, and there's probably more yeast moving over to that barrel than they realize. Uh, and so that's why I recommend not filling off a fermenter. I recommend filling a barrel with clean, bright beer. And it's, you know, the cleaner the beer going in, the cleaner the beer going out. So our standard practice is to uh, rack beer from a fermenter into a bright tank and fine it and fully clarify it. And then we fill barrels with fully clarified, fully chilled beer. You also recommend warming up and degassing the beer in advance. Why? So a uh, couple reasons. Uh, you have to cool down the beer, obviously, to precipitate out a lot of haze proteins and clear those proteins. There is always a residual amount of there's always some level of CO2 in in a beer. And I I think that 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 can create pressure issues over pressurization issues in, in barrels. Uh, I suppose somebody could you know, take a, a CO2, dissolve CO2 reading before filling a barrel. It's not something I've done. I mean, maybe if you wanted to kind of calculate what the pressure buildup would be. But um, I also recommend letting the, uh, the uh, barrels warm up be, uh, with a vented bung uh, because beer expands uh, anywhere from one to one and a half percent when it's warming up from uh, let's just say 32 degrees to 60 or 65 degrees. And that's a substantial volume of beer. It's like multiple pints of beer. That's got to go somewhere. So even if you were to fill off a fermenter and you were, let's say you crashed that beer down, you got all the yeast out, it's cold going into the barrel. You could leave headspace, I suppose, and kind of maybe calculate what that expansion would be. But, I prefer to fill barrels all the way until they're overflowing. And then we uh, plug them with a vented bung and let them expand, warm up and off gas for a week. And then we swap out that bung uh, for a solid bung after a week. You've got some tips for sample nail and drill bit sizes. Let's hear that. Oh, what is that? I think the drill bit size is nine sixty fourths. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm remembering. Is that in a 16D? <laughs> yes. On so the, the nail. The six. The 16D nail, specifically a three and a half inch length. Uh, 
you can get uh, really high quality, like 316 series stainless steel nails, like almost surgical grade stainless steel nails from McMaster Car or a lot of other supply houses, super cheap. I think I pay, I feel like it's like 10 bucks for a 25 pack. Um, but that size is, uh, that drill bit size is large enough so that once you drill your pilot hole, uh, the wood, the wet wood in the head of the barrel won't close up. I've tried smaller drill bit sizes before, and, uh, I've had the barrel head, like the hole basically seal up as soon as I was done drilling the hole. So it needs to be big enough, um, but not too big. And that drill bit size allows uh, just the right amount of squeeze around the 16D nail when you install it. All right, good to know. What level of micro do you typically do for these beers? I think it's a good idea to get uh, beer. It's There's no excuse not to plate beer before going into a barrel, especially breweries that might use some type of diastatic uh uh, yeast like a French Saison. So I recommend uh, getting finished beer plated for uh, stray yeast and bacteria, just a full biological plating before you go into a barrel. And that's not that expensive. That's anywhere from one to $300 at a lab, depending on, on the range of tests you want to do. Um, and then pulling beer out of barrels, it's a good idea to plate things there too. Uh, it can take a little bit of practice to get good sanitary samples that, you know, don't, don't have false positives. And also, uh, when you, when you pull samples out of a, a barrel at the end of the year or so aging process to make sure the lab that's plating them, um, is specifically plating for spoilers. Cause there might be, uh, a, like a non-specific bacilli in a barrel that is not a spoiler that will will plate positive, but won't go anywhere and won't be a threat in packaging. Kind of like the bacilli, the non-spoiler bacilli that you might get from dry hopping a beer. All right. Let's hear about your approach to blending. Blending. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. So uh, one of the first barrel-aged beers that we did about seven years ago uh, was an Imperial Stout. And at the time, I, I still had a sense that things like bitterness and roast needed to be reduced in the base beer. Um, but this particular beer, I didn't reduce the bitterness enough. I think on paper, it was around 40 BUs. And when I pulled it out of the barrel after a year, uh, the flavors were great. The aroma was great. And then the finish, it had this awful tannic surge. It was like, oh, this is good. Wow, this is suddenly horrible. and. Um, I, I thought, well, I wonder, I wonder what happens if I, if I just blend in a little bit of milk stout, I've got a milk stout on tap. Let me put a splash in this pint of barrel aged stout. And suddenly that counteracted that tannic surge and it added a silkiness back to the beer. And it was kind of one of those revelations like, oh, I see why, uh, like, why people like Matt Bernoldson are so keen on, on blending. I used to think, Oh, just brew the beer that you want and go into the barrel. Just do it right the first time. But I was really kind of, I was completely missing the uh, advantage of being able to fine tune flavors with different beers. And so uh, I am a 
big fan of blending because sometimes you want a different type of beer to to blend into what's coming out of the barrel. You recommend checking barrels weekly for leaks and distension. How do you correct those problems when you discover them? So um, we've we've had this happen on occasion where uh, a beer was bung too soon, or there may be something going on in the barrel that we're that that we don't like. But we've seen barrels start to leak and heads kind of start to bulge out a little bit, and that can be a dangerous situation. Uh, I've certainly known of breweries that have had barrels overpressurized, and when a barrel head goes, it can often give no warning. And it's a pretty catastrophic failure when it happens. Uh, so if you, if you typically things in barrels happen slow enough that weekly checks are adequate, but if you see a barrel that is kind of showing signs of distension or might be building pressure, I recommend drilling a small hole, uh, near actually the, uh, the bung hole itself. And the reason I recommend doing it there is because you, there probably will be a small amount of headspace in the barrel and you won't simply be, you know, uh, depressurizing the barrel by blowing down the liquid volume. So, uh, we drill a, a hole in the, uh, the top of the barrel right next to the bung. And I have a stainless steel sanitary screw ready to grow on a screw gun. So drill the hole and immediately drill the screw in there into that hole. And then I back it out slowly until I can very precisely control the bleed rate. And so I just, I will let the barrel completely depressurize. It may take 10 minutes. It may take six hours, but it's slow and controlled and safe. Yeah, I, I imagine it's a lot safer than trying to do that on the head of the barrel where, you know, it could go while you're doing it. Um, oh, it, it would be a jet of beer. And I also don't recommend uh, people removing bungs because those can shoot out and just completely whack you in the face. So why don't, why, why don't you just uh, screw the screw in instead of drilling the hole first? Uh, you could do that. Uh, you, you could. Um, it might not provide there might be too much i haven't tried it that way before but there might be a little too much squeeze if you will around the threads of the screw it might not allow enough uh clearance for just that that kind of gaseous creep okay um cool but yeah i was just curious it. yeah you could certainly you could certainly try it um the other the other reason i like to use a drill is because I can sanitize the drill bit. I can heat it up over an open flame and kill any bacteria that's on there. I can also spray down the outer surface of the uh, the wood with isopropyl a couple times and functionally uh, lick anything that's on the outside of the barrel. And then when I drill into it, I can drill at a fast speed and kind of create a little bit of smoke. And these are kind of some overlapping practices that functionally reduce or eliminate ingress of crap that's on the outside of the barrel so that's another reason i like to do the drill is because it kind of creates a sanitary 
uh, hole into the the inside of the barrel. Cool. Uh, talk about aging time. I've never understood why brewers age beers, especially in bourbon barrels, for so long. Sixteen years ago, I took over an already established bourbon barrel stout program at Old Dominion Brewing Company, and I remember getting all of the character we wanted out of a one to two week aging process. What does another eleven plus months get you besides storage and cash flow issues? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, good, good question. I, I've tasted beers at, uh, one month, two months, three months, four months. I I've tasted beers on a monthly basis and I, in general, uh, at least with the beers that we brew, I, I find that it doesn't kind of crest the hill to the, uh, the finish line that I want until that, like close to the 12 month point. I wow. find that the beers are too. Um, after just one or two months, I find the beers are too sharp and not soft enough. And that could be a function of, um, uh, micro oxidation also where you were at old dominion. I mean, that's back East. That could have been very different temperature and humidity conditions that could cause different swelling and if you will, breathing of the barrel, because over a period of time, there is an exchange beer goes into the wood and comes out with spirit. It goes back into the wood, comes out with more spirit. There's kind of this exchange that takes place. And, uh, I don't think you get that full exchange. I haven't been able to get that full exchange in one to two weeks. It's taken for me, it's taken a year. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's been obviously a long time since I did it, but I do remember, um, there being a drastic uh, difference in time um, just based on the time of year. So for example, in the summertime, uh, you know, one week might be fine in the wintertime you, you needed two weeks. All right. Well, that's all the questions I've got. Did I miss anything that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, I think that w- one of the, probably the, the most salient point that, that I like to drive home with, uh, with barrel aged beers is, is really to think of the barrel as an ingredient um and that you should design in most cases you're you're going to get the best results if you design a beer specifically to be compatible with that that barrel character and play around with blending uh a lot of brew pubs and and uh, smaller breweries have a wide variety of beers on tap play around with all of them and you know take take a pint of beer and measure out one ounce of some other beer and blend it in and see what your ratios get you. And I think people will be pleasantly surprised by what they can create and correct. Um, and, uh, by, by blending, I think blending is an immensely powerful tool and we use it all the time. That was Julian Schrago here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview with Julian, check out his TQ paper for more tips and tricks. You'll find a link in the show notes or just type barrel into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. 
The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Precision Fermentation, and the Lupulin Exchange. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 